0: All right, guys. It's another episode of Play Cousins podcast. Woo! We are here. Um, we're back off a week layoff. I know because we had to get our minds right for had to get it right. Had to get it right. I had to get our minds right for a very important episode. Yes. Um, Lindsay, as of course is always right here to the right of me. How are you?
1: I'm good. How are you, Jameer?
0: I'm good. Um, welcome, guys. Uh, this is a powerful show that we're gonna be having. Woo. Lindsay, how are you doing?
1: I'm good. I'm excited for this one. Me too. I'm me really too. excited. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And you're also big time now. I want to just shout out your I accomplishment. I am big time. Uh, working, writing now exclusively for Double XL, <laughs> And I'm very proud <laughs> of you for that.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah.
0: And we'll talk more about your writing. Uh, we'll talk offline in the next episode um, where we talk more about rapidity Rap Rap stuff. rapidity Rap Rap. Rappity Rap Rap stuff. But today, I think it was... Uh, such an important topic to touch on yes. and um to end off our Dear Khalif series mm. this is part three of Dear Khalif um, thank you to everybody who uh, uh, wrote and commented all the feedback all the it's feedback has been amazing yes for the first two episodes mm-hmm. um, the first episode dealt with like just us personally uh, the second episode we actually had a corrections officer yes uh, here with us who gave us the rundown and we those talked those were some about, powerful stories wasn't it?
1: Oh my gosh. I can't believe what she faces on a daily.
0: On a daily basis. And just to get her perspective as someone, again, who is a human, but also uh, a corrections officer. And now we're dealing with, I want to talk a little bit more about Khalif personally, the legality of the whole situation Mm -hmm. with Khalif Browder. So uh, what better way than to do it than with uh, uh, Khalif's lawyer and also lawyer of new york i mean this guy was rated one of the best (laughs) lawyers in new york um acclaimed and just uh I have to thank him before I introduce him for his work in the communities and just defending people and giving people a chance uh, because in this system, if, if you, if don't, get, you if, don't get that often at especially all, especially <laughs> if you're a minority, I mm-hmm. mean, it's, it's, it's very hard and uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about him and also Khalid Browder, but I want you to give it up for Paul Prestia. How are you, man? How are I'm you? Great, I I'm great. You. Thank you, thank Isn't you.
2: Isn't it the best with intros? Oh my god, I'm flattered. Uh-huh. I feel like you're at the. Oscars. You didn't
0: have to do that, but thank you. <laughs> I, I did appreciate have to those do kind it. words. No, I, I, I absolutely yes, did. Thank
1: you for being here.
0: Yeah, and um, look, before, because a lot of people were like, How, how'd you get him on the show? And um,
1: everybody's been asking me that. Yeah, I mentioned it too, too. Yeah,
0: and uh, Paul is an amazing guy. And uh, I posted something about Khalif. And he followed me, and I was like, "Well, uh, <laughs> I'm just gonna <laughs> see him on Instagram and try to, you know, DM him." And I did, and he he responded, mm. and um, we 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 worked towards making this happen because I think he felt just as we feel how important this mm. is and how important this dialogue uh, needs to continue to happen. So, Paul, thank you for being here. Yeah, on. of course. Yes, thank you. Of course. <laughs> yes. All right. So before we get into all the Kalib talk, uh. We want to know a little bit more about you we try to humanize and put everybody on our show out there because everybody has a story so we need to know your story uh you growing up in long island you're, you're new york born and bred um but you know what were you into before law let's let's start. you say you did a little bit of radio djing but you know what's up with some of your interests and how were you growing up
2: yeah, I had a I had a show back in college. Okay. You know, it right. was a talk show. It was okay. a talk show. I wasn't playing music. <laughs> as we <laughs> were talking about before, Lindsay could tell I don't know that much about music. I'm still catching up.
0: Still catching up, Future. We 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 got him with yeah, Master. Yeah, you off. got the
1: future. You're good. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and um you know, I had some different interests. Mm-hmm. You know, more like uh, I guess artistic. You know, I had thought about uh I, law was really something I hadn't considered back in college, but my brother had gotten to law school, or he had been—he was in law school at the time that I was graduating. I come. My parents are both from Italy. My father's from Sicily. My mother's from uh, a small province down south in southern Italy called Calabria. And uh, so they came here when they were in—they the, were teenagers. And my father really pushed me to follow my brother to go to law school. Uh, he thought it was important for me to do that. Now mm-hmm. it wasn't necessarily what I wanted to do at the time. Mm-hmm. But I could see his perspective on why he wanted me to uh, since I had that opportunity to actually go forward and, and do it. Uh, he didn't, because he didn't have that opportunity, I think he faced some challenges because he wasn't able to get that education. He didn't know the language. He faced certain types of certain stereotypes uh, back in the '60s when he came here. So um, You know, it's not exactly what I wanted, but I think it all sort of worked out. I found my passion uh, for the law eventually, maybe not at first, Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, it was interesting. You know, and I I remember, I I definitely think there's something to it when you get that law degree. You're Mm -hmm. treated a different way. You're seen a different way. I grew up in a very small, uh, in a small town in Long Island, was a very wealthy town And we didn't really come from that. We were just a middle-class family. And, um, you know, there's definitely like a bit of a dichotomy there Mm, growing mm -hmm. up and maybe that insecurity that we didn't have what other people had. So I think, you know, you kind of always have that chip on your shoulder that you feel you need to prove something. You need to work towards something. So uh, it's just something you you just do every day, Mm. you know? Like you need to have that inspiration. Yeah.
1: What made you what was the moment when you because you said that you eventually came into your passion for law. What was the moment that kind of led you into that passion? Because like, was it an aha moment or was it something you dealt with or a case that you saw that kind of led you to be like, okay, this is definitely something I couldn't see myself really doing?
2: Yeah, I think in law school, I was kind of—I was 22 when I started law school. So really, that—I remember the summer of my first year in law school. I was actually after my internship. I was going into the city and doing stand-up comedy. You did stand-up? I did. Really? Uh-huh. I did briefly, briefly? I did stand-up too. You did? <laughs> I, I swear. you. Oh, it Sucks when they throw tomatoes at you, right?
0: Well, I never <laughs> got hit with a tomato, but I got. <clears throat> horrifically booed off stage one time. Did you? At school, yeah.
2: They're an interesting uh, group, those comics. Yeah, I have yeah, to say. yeah.
0: I'm not built for it. No,
2: no, no. <laughs> not at all.
1: Oh, gosh. So th- and, and now Hot uh, 97 just has you doing stand-up, basically. Hey, pretty <laughs> much. <the> streets.
2: Mm. <laughs> you know, it was just like a cathartic thing for me, writing and doing that. Yeah. And, um, you know, I kind of dabbled in that in law school. That I, I wasn't entirely down with law school at that mm-hmm. time and studying. And then, uh, you know, I was like president of my law school and I, I made it, I made it through. I did, I did pretty well, not, probably not as well as I could have mm-hmm. had I applied myself entirely. But, I, you know, I, um, I, I would say that my immaturity at that time had a lot to do with that. And then, the, but the district attorney's office was really a place that I found I, I fit into very well. Because I could never see my, I never saw myself as an attorney, and part of the turnoff with going to law school was, I could never see myself as one of these attorneys who sat at a desk all day, billed hours, and were miserable, Mm. you know? And there's Mm. always that distinction or that dichotomy in the law. Well, if you do very well in law school, and you make law review, you're going to get a big job with a big firm, make a ton of money, but... That's that's your life. Right. Working is going to be your life. And I guess the, the other side of that is, well, you can work at the district attorney's office and have a comfortable life um, and you'll have some, I guess, it'll be more what you want or have your own practice mm-hmm. and have a little more flexibility. Um, so it's a sacrifice either way, right. really. But, um, you know, I just felt comfortable there at first. Right. But ultimately I left and I think... When I really found, I I think it wasn't until I started my own practice that I really felt like, you know, this is something I want to do more of, like, in terms of the civil rights. Mm. Right. And, um, you know, so it's been a sort of a long road in that respect. But you have, I I think there was one case where I felt like, wow, I really did something important here, and that was uh, I was representing uh a, an individual, a, friend, a, a person who was Haitian, mm-hmm. and he worked in a restaurant in downtown Manhattan. Okay, and really nice guy, really nice family, um, immigrant, and uh, he he called me one day and said the cops were looking for him, and apparently there was um, some girl had walked had alleged that he had raped her mm. at gunpoint.
1: Jeez. Oh my god!
2: Yeah, and it just so happened that the rape. Uh, the allegation was that, can I get into this now? Go ahead. We got yeah, time? Go yeah, yeah, right. okay. Let's do it. So he, basically the allegation was that this um, this this black gentleman came, approached her with a gun, told her to get in a car, drove to a shopping, a parking lot in Brooklyn, in, in, sorry, in the Bronx, and raped her at gunpoint. Mm. And he was somehow ID'd. Identified by this wow. victim as the person who did it. Oh, no. So when he told me the story, and he's like, "Paul, it couldn't be me. I, I was working," and he was, or he was just getting off of work. Mm-hmm. The description of the incident didn't match at all. I mean, uh, he didn't speak; in, he spoke very broken English. Mm. He didn't have a driver's license. Mm. Uh, he he didn't even have a permit I think he had a driver's permit. Uh, there's just no way. And basically, and I think. At some point, the person who did this said to the woman, "Don't say anything." The gun has a silencer.
3: Sheesh. Oh my god!
2: And he could not even pronounce the word Sorry. based on his Haitian accent. Oh, it was so distinct. Mm-hmm. And I think if the woman had reported it to the officer, she would have remembered. He was black, a- but he had this accent. Accent, right? right. She yeah. never mentioned that at all. Hmm. So there were just so many, incons- so many issues that the officer didn't even bother to investigate. Basically, she picked him out of a book, a photo, right, right, right. an old photo, because mm-hmm. uh, he had been through the system mm. for something minor. And, you know, he was, in Riker- he was in Rikers for like almost 10 days. And it was so clear to me from the beginning this wasn't him. Right. I mean, I literally had to go to the district attorney's office door and knock on that door and be like you need to get this let this guy out he didn't do it. Mm. Mm. I mean the, the, it was so clear to me. I mean how the cop just overlooked it just showed me that the co- the officer didn't, didn't care. Right. Mm. You know and they didn't they don't have a duty to investigate believe it or not. So I think that was really? probably that was around 2010 2011. That was probably the first time I was like wow. You know there's that was real really problem, fucked yeah. up. Yeah. That yeah. was really fucked up that this happened to him. Yeah. And um, I, I saw during the course of our civil suit, you know, deposing the officer and just the attitude mm-hmm. and the, the cover up and the lies. And it, it just, you know, it, it just really gave me um, like, you know, something. I, I just felt like I, I need to do more of this. Mm.
0: Mm. And, and so you, you made it your business because I, I truly feel like there are some lawyers and and, and policemen who are on the quote-unquote right side of the law, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, you identify a problem in the community or, or where you work and the place you dwell and you, you try to right that wrong. Knowing that this, you see something like this and we see what happens in the future with, you, with, with Khalif knowing that this is an uphill battle. Mm. How do you continue to prep yourself and drive yourself, knowing the the long hours that you have to do in court, knowing that police do cover-ups, knowing that there may be enough evidence to put this Mm. person that you're facing away, but you know they didn't do it. The the know-it-all in your mind to keep going, the heart, the soul, the passion that you put into this, what continues to fuel that? i
2: just uh i I just have to say, you know i just um I just try to do the right thing, part of it's a challenge mm. Mm. that I don't want to say you want to get people off that's right. not the right word, but you want to defend them to the best to the extent that you can, and there are different degrees of guilt and innocence right and but ultimately it's it's the district attorney's burden to prove that a crime was committed mm and they really, uh, there are, I will not say tricks, but there are techniques and things that we need to do to sort of push them. Mm-hmm. Make sure the district attorneys are ready and do have ca- a case and do have evidence because oftentimes they take it for granted right. that they think, oh, I'm gonna get a plea here. Oh, oh this, this, this person's guilty. They're mm-hmm. presuming him guilty already. So I think part of it is the challenge to, you know, when someone comes into my office, uh, it's not, Hey, um, all right, well, here's the retainer. Just sign it. I'll see you in court next week. it's, I want to get to know the person. I want to get to know what happened, why it happened, if it happened Mm. and what the circumstances were. And I think, um, you know, it's something as a, as a solo practitioner, I have the ability to do because I meet with my clients. Mm. um, and I get to sort of understand their background and how things happen. And I think I can relate to them on most levels. Right. Even if I can't, I try mm-hmm. to.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And, but, you know, with Khalif, it was just a completely different level. Yeah. I mean, it blew the whole attorney-client relationship away. Right. Wow. You know, the fact that um, I had spent so much time with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, there's a thing about coming into the office. Okay, you you talk to the client, you laugh, you know, or a client confides something in you and uh, you get their perspective on things and then, hey, okay, what do I have to do to get him the best result or right. her the best result? Mm-hmm. Or how are we going to uh, pursue this case civilly? Mm-hmm. You know, that type of thing. But with Khalif, wow, it was just, uh,
0: the whole experience, it was just, it, it just blew me away. Right. Now you referred to Khalif through a family member. Right. who you represented it. Uh, represented prior, right? Right, his brother Akeem. right, mm. who was With that
1: known crazy case. Was that,
0: that that was the case that was known? Ooh he was the gosh. Bronx rapist. No, no, no,
2: no, no, no. That was before my time. Okay,
0: okay, sorry. Sure, I think that was in 1997. Right. Yeah. Okay, just making making sure. All right. So, but uh, his his brother referred referred you to uh, Khalid.
2: Right, his brother had a criminal case. Right, and mm-hmm. I had met him. In the courthouse, actually, and I, mm. I spoke to him. I took his case. We got his case dismissed. Sued the city, and then I think not too long after his case, he just called me out of the blue and he told me that his brother had been in Rikers for three years and he just got home. Mm. Wow! So, and uh, and that's what I met when I, you know, when I when he came in a few weeks after that.
0: Right. You 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 stated that with Khalif it was it was different. You sit down with Khalif the first time, and I'm sure it took a process of him developing that trust for you. But that first interaction with him, knowing what he'd been through, knowing his case, what do you remember about those first interactions with Khalif Browder? The first time I met with Khalif, he was
2: extremely guarded. Mm. Mm -hmm. So in fact, he didn't say much about the solitary confinement the first time I met him. And in fact, it was more of a three years in jail case, mm. based on. I, I don't want to get too technical with the right, legal right. issue, but tech, uh, Basically, it was a robbery case, right, where the complaining witness had identified Khalif, and in civil, in these in civil cases, the. It's very easy that you, there's an issue with probable cause. And the city can make a motion for summary judgment for dismissal because once a victim says, "Hey, officer, that guy robbed me," right? The officer doesn't have a duty to investigate. Just like that example I told you about right. the rape case, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. they make the arrest. He goes to jail, and the city could say, "Well, the officer had probable cause because the victim identified him." Right. So we're going to make a motion to dismiss. And I think it's it, so scary. It yeah. is. Like, it's it crazy. is crazy. I mean, I could walk out of here right now, and Lindsay could call the police and say, hey, Paul Presti was just in here and he oh threatened God.
0: me mm. right now. If you, here, you if you weren't here, if you weren't here right? say, hey, right. You, no, they you know, they could
1: didn't. simply just arrest you just yeah. based on the accusation. Oh, well, they would. That's they crazy, would.
2: especially. Well, it's actually more intense if there's a domestic aspect to it. But we just met. Right. <laughs> right. Just kidding. <laughs> um, in any event. Easy. So he didn't really even open up to me about that at first. Mm-hmm. I just, but the sense I got from him was different than anyone I had met. He was mm. just so raw right. mm. and broken and the, like the anger and the pain, the resentment was palpable. You know, the right. fact that he just lost those three years and he was so young, right? but mm-hmm. he was so changed probably from what he was at mm-hmm. 16. So we agreed to, you know, to keep talking. You know, I, I, I talked to him, I met with him, and then he came back, and slowly he started speaking to me about opening up about the solitary stuff. Mm-hmm. And the more I looked into his case and the more that we spoke, and I think it was he had a municipal hearing, which is a 50-H hearing. Mm-hmm. So if you file a notice of claim, which is different from a lawsuit, you're into, or it triggers a 58 hearing, which is basically um, a very informal deposition. Right. And he, when he was up there and, and giving testimony that day, he was asked about the solitary, and he had to open up, he had to be truthful, and he told a lot more, and uh, he t- he, that was the first time he spoke about not being fed. Right. Mm. And I remember when we walked out of there, he still wasn't very talkative at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is about 2 months in. Okay. I uh I was just like I I was so affected when he told me that about being starved and everything mm-hmm. and how you know, just picture myself there. Just picture this. Being 17 in solitary confinement, a cell, you know, basically the size of this room. Right. Or in the area that we're sitting. Yeah. And mm. having nothing to look forward to every day, growing, probably still growing, mm-hmm. nothing to look forward to, but your three meals, meals, which.
1: they're like slop, right? It's like mean, they,
2: they can't even feed that like my nine year old daughter right, or 10 year old daughter, actually.
0: So you feed in a, a grown, almost grown man.
2: Right. Yeah. Three, sli- you know, and they slip it through a slot in the mm-hmm. door for you to mm. pick it up. And then not being fed, he, and the, the story they told was not being fed often, or you know not being or having the officers, you know, take a bite out of his food and give it to him like half uh. eaten, or sitting in front of his cell eating like a candy bar because he didn't have mm. access to commissary yeah. in right. solitary. So, you know, just like rubbing it in. You know, like mm. these mental, you know, mm-hmm. and to me, the mental aspect of what yeah. he went through was even worse than the physical violence that you saw yeah. in that those videos. Country. Uh-huh, mm-hmm. for sure. And just, you know, I'm picturing him there as a young kid looking forward to that meal and not getting that meal for four meals. Mm-hmm. So almost, o- almost two days, right. almost ho- two whole days not being able to eat. I, I felt like, uh, I felt, you know, I, I, maybe I had this fatherly instinct at that point and mm. it kicked in and I said, let's get something to eat. And right. we went into mm-hmm. this uh, deli right next to my office, you know, where they have the uh, the food buffet. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, gave him a, I gave him a tray and I just said, hey, Go get crazy. whatever you want. Yeah, get whatever yeah. you want. I don't know. And he came back and he put it on the scale. It was like over th- almost $40. $40, right? yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did I tell
0: you this? No, 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 no. <laughs> I,
2: I read it. I read it. Oh, you did? It. Yeah, yeah. I don't. Re- oh, wow. Um, and I was like, man, I would have bought him a mistake if I knew that. You <laughs> right. Know? Yeah. And he just sat there and he ate. You know, he just sat there and he ate. And, you know, I think that was the first time him and I had a moment. Gotcha. Mm. But really, I remember when he left that day, I was like, wow, I really, I got to look out for this kid because he did speak about the suicide as well, the suicide mm-hmm. attempts. Mm. And I said. Paul, you need to pay more attention to him. And I just remember sitting in that at that hearing, and um, even when we were eating, asking about some of the stuff they talked about. And I, I looked. I, I just thought to myself when I left. I'm like, because at that point I knew about the arrest mm. and the fallacies or the inconsistencies mm. with the arrest, and I knew about the prosecution and how. Most of what he was telling me, like they they were never ready, they were never ready. Right. And then he threw in there the solitary. I was like, like my jaw dropped. I was just like, this is the most, this is the most compelling case in America. Right. And that was four years ago. Mm. Right. You know? Yeah, Yeah. it was right. Yeah. As it turns out. And remember, he was just a teenager and he was innocent. And, um, you know, that's when, you know, I, I you know I spoke to him about you know talking about his story, mm. and uh, you know after that we you know we got to a point where we're very like comfortable with each other and very cool with each other, and you know I kind of took that roller coaster ride with him. Yeah, uh, I, I felt I, like you know I felt like I had I had to. Mm-hmm. Of yeah because actually it wasn't too long after that that he that was in in november we probably did that 58 cheering in september 2013 and the his first suicide attempt when he got home was in november Sheesh. when Sheesh. his friend walked in and he was hanging from, from the, the railing.
1: yeah mm. Mm. i just have a question you know um just from like the psychology the, uh-huh. the psychological aspect of everything you know um Being that, you know, because you said that you had a moment where you were able to, you know, feed him with like the $40 worth of food. And it sounded like that was more of like a positive, like a positive moment for him out of all of this darkness. Did you ever get to see, did you ever, even though he was, you know, in such a horrible place, you know, mentally and emotionally and it, it unfortunately, you know, took the best of him. Do you think that at any points he was psychologically, at least in front of you, like making progress with that? You know, did you see that maybe that there was he was improving, that he was starting to feel a little bit better, come out of that darkness at any point?
2: Absolutely, Mm. absolutely. I I saw really. It was, a lot of times it was one step forward, two two steps Mm. back, because I know he was making progress. I could sense it. You know, when I saw him. You know, I had to check his eyes and check him mm. and see you know what his like disposition his state was state would that be day. of that yeah. day, yeah of course because I knew he was going Because every day stuff.
1: you wake up is different you know
2: absolutely absolutely mm. and I don't you know I know he's got probably he's part of his mind is still trapped in Rikers yeah mm. you know trying to assimilate back into society I mean I set up an email for him he didn't really know how to use a computer, we made a resume, you know, I was trying to do like little things to help him out to the extent that I could, mm-hmm. that I thought was uh, like within my control. I know he had a family and, and friends, but, you know, I, I definitely saw a lot of positive signs over the course of those two years. In fact, I, at some point, like in that spring of 2015, I'm like, he's going to make it, he's going to be okay.
1: Mm. Did he ever talk about his future, about future things he would want to possibly do, like f- for his, you know, his plans, or whether it would be a career or, f- you know, family one day, anything like that?
2: Yeah, of course. We always talked about that. Mm. You know, he had, you know, sometimes he changes mind, but you know, at that age, you know, <laughs> yeah, one, day you this, <laughs> one day you want to be this, one day you want to be that. But I really, you know, in the time that we spent together, we didn't just talk about the case. A lot of times, if I knew he wasn't working. I would say, oh, just come down and hang out. Come to the office, hang out. We'll get some hot cocoa or whatever. And we'd try to just talk about life. You know, i talk about my kids or, like, soccer or, you know, sports, girls, whatever.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Just to, um, you know, I, I didn't want to barrage him with the case. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, give him an idea of, like, to, to remind him that there's so much life for him to live despite Mm -hmm. what he had gone through. Because I knew once he made that first suicide attempt, it was always in the back of my mind that it could happen again. Yes, absolutely. So it was, you know, it it was tough because psychologically I couldn't always really understand him. Right. And I couldn't always, you know, fix it, even if I tried to talk to him. But, you know, I knew that you know, at that point, he was getting counseling. But I, I really didn't even trust the, like, the psychiatrists and the counselors who were involved. Mm. Because his treatment was sporadic. Mm. And that really concerned me. And I wasn't, he wasn't really happy about being on pills. He was given different medications. Mm. Right. Sometimes he wasn't taking them. And you could just see his mood was so affected. I mean, he would come down sometimes and just be completely fucking paranoid. Mm-hmm. Mm. Like, hey, Prestia, this guy in my class, I think he's. Uh, he followed me on the train today. I said, you sure?
3: Mm. You know,
2: like stuff like that. Uh, but other times he was great. He was fine. You know, they, he had some moments like months at a time where he was doing well. You know, he was working in my office
3: mm.
2: in the summer of 2014. Uh, so basically after that, he in the in the, just to give you like a timeline, in the fall of I'm sorry. In the spring of 2014, he enrolled for his GED at Lehman, mm-hmm. and so he was doing well. You know, he had an incident with someone at the school, and you know, we had to run up to the precinct to make sure that you know he wasn't uh, arrested or charged for anything. And then he got this job in my office building with one of my friends, handing out flyers. It was a marketing thing, mm-hmm. a few hours a day, but just to keep him occupied. Right. Yeah. I mean, I thought the worst thing for him was idle time, time. Yeah. Oh, right. yeah yeah. of worst course worst thing mm. worst thing so he was doing well you know he was doing well there and then and then he ended up at BCC so you know and then of course at BCC he you know he got shot I'm running up to the hospital mm-hmm. he's in the psych ward his mother's calling me he disappeared for like 10 days around mm. Christmas of that year and I really honestly thought he was dead somewhere Mm. at that point I mean nobody nobody heard from him
3: Mm.
2: Uh, it was probably over a week and then he turns out he was in Harlem Hospital and then he was in St. Barnabas the psych ward there so you know at that point we really sat down with uh you know Jennifer at that point had gotten close to him also Mm. so we had spent a lot of time together you know the three of us too because Jen was I think looking out for him also and we were talking about trying to get him into um, like some sort of inpatient program because it was clear he I, I thought maybe he needs something more intense mm. because he had this sporadic sort of, you know, you have to understand the psychology also. At that point, I think he was probably 21
3: mm.
2: at that age. No one wants to admit that. they. you know, he had pride. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he was always like when I when I encouraged him, you know, some people see counseling like as a stigma sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Eventually, like I think he it kind of helped him. But he had pride, like, you know, I'm okay. Yeah. You know, I'm right. okay. And I think anytime time tried to
0: carry that on his shoulders by himself. Yeah, of yeah.
2: course. Of course. And I think anytime you go through something traumatic in life. And I, I can't compare anything I've gone through to what he went through. But I, I know that, you know, I was separated when I when I met him. I'd just been separated. So I know that personally that was like I've been going through something. If you, you know, you need that time to heal yourself mm. Mm. because it's very easy to say, well, you know, I married the wrong person and I'm good. I'm good. I didn't do anything, you know, it just didn't work out. Right. And have that bravado, you know, like oh, It's fine. But there, you know, you have to deal with the issues.
0: Can't um, you? Can't try to hide from no, that. No, yeah, you yeah.
2: can't. You can't because he will catch up with you. Yeah. Mm. And I think with Khalif was, the healing process, was really so um, intense for him. That it was more than just, or needed to be more so intense for him. That needed to be more than. Oh, go see your counselor every two weeks, every week, and see your psychiatrist every two weeks so he can give you pills. Right. You know, he needed something, like, more consistent.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. He needed, like, a real support system.
2: Yeah. Like a foundation. And, like I said, he had his family, but we're all limited in terms of, you know, what we can do in that aspect.
1: Mm.
2: You know, we can do our best and, you know, make him feel loved and appreciated. And uh, valued as a human being, something he didn't have at Rikers Island, and especially in solitary. I mean, think about the just having no human contact, right? Being devoid of that for all those years, Mm -hmm. unless you call. Being slammed to the floor by corrections, yeah,
0: right. Yeah, you know.
2: I mean, at some point, I think I I would always like give him a hug goodbye when I saw him. Mm -hmm. Just because I know, like he 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 didn't get hugs for like years. Yeah, yeah. You know, nobody yeah. hugged him. Yeah. So I think at some point I just you know I just gave him a hug like, you know don't don't think it's weird, Khalif man. I just gotta give you a hug. <laughs> right. Done, yeah. You no, know, yeah.
0: he got you know it was cool. That's sweet. Yeah. It was cool. I, you, you talked about his his growth and you know his attempt to find peace. Um, what around that time? And you say you were separated. You know, you just been separated. How how did you got cause you guys kinda grew together in senses. Um, you guys found peace within each other. So how did how did Khalif help you mature and graduate to the next level? I mm. guess mentally, emotionally, just from being around him? Mm. How did that help strengthen you?
2: Khalif gave me something like at that point in you know, in my practice, something to latch on to. Mm. And something to really pursue to take my mind off whatever else was bothering me. And I really, you know, began to appreciate him as, you know, he, he was just, um, you know, and I, I, I saw myself, you know, and I think maybe that's one of the reasons why I, you know, I had that affection for him. Because hmm. I was like, wow, man, you just, he didn't realize how much he had helped me at that point, you know.
0: Mm. Mm. This is powerful. Yeah. Yeah, just trying to, you know, take all that in and just to see.
1: I feel like we're really getting to just know him. Yeah. Who he was. Yeah. 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 Paint him as a real human as opposed to just this. Because everybody, you know, Mm. in the media with this case, everybody just paints him as, you know, the kid from Rikers that was done wrong. But nobody sees Khalif Browder for Khalif Browder. You know, we only hear it through his family members in that documentary. Because other than that, he's just a number at Rikers that his uh, is sensationalized for his case but we don't know who he was you know when we came we came when he came home everybody in you know when his story was heard we only just hear of he's just a depressed kid who just you know it seems like you you know people want to it makes it seem as though he didn't have anything else but that darkness from Rikers, but he also had all this hope. He had all these you know, goals and yeah. dreams that we want to hear about. You know, he all had that. Made he, them a human.
2: He definitely had that, he yeah. de- without a doubt. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things he wanted to really pursue was the education. Mm-hmm. And I think for him that's something that, uh, that he thrived on because mm. he was always seemed to be doing well and inspired by you know, what he was learning. And, um, you know, he had a lot of aspirations, you know, and he had a lot of, a lot of dreams, you know, but part of him just really wanted to be normal. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, even though he'd laugh and you could joke around with him and I'd introduce, he, he knew people in my office, you know, like some of my friends and Mm -hmm. stuff. And he was always welcome there, especially when he was working, He always come up to our floor. And I liked that because I could see him every day. Um, you know, I think part of it for him mentally was... Yeah, you know I'm on the right track, but still I can't get that time back. Right. Yeah. You right. know, and that's the one thing, you know, I think that's and the trauma
1: so, of what happened in those years. It's yeah. not even just. It's not even just that he went somewhere and was just at a camp. Right. Like he was. In brutal. some of the most torturous, like, you, brutal, it, you know, years. yeah, it was in a torturous place. It oh, wasn't yeah. even just a regular federal, federal camp. Like it was a full fledged mm. yeah. solitary confinement. Imagine, is not a joke. imagine,
2: sitting in that cell not being taken to a shower mm. for 14 days. Right. Oh God. It's like the indignity Crazy. of that. Yeah. Mm. You know, like that's you shackled, know. shackled by the hands and feet. Inhumane. Yeah.
0: In-, in court. That just,
2: Inhumane. yeah. You know, it's like modern day slavery, slavery. you know, yeah. it's, it's, um, and, yeah, I, 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 I get your point about the way it's depicted. There was a very human side to him, and I think you saw glimpses of that in the series to yeah. the extent that you could. Mm. Um, hmm. But, yeah, I, I don't think it's, you know, I, I'm, I'm not really, I don't really appreciate when I see people coming out all of a sudden like, oh, my God, Khalif Browder, what a tragic story. And, you know, I see people in the media reacting to it like that. Mm -hmm. Or I see these politicians coming out. Right. Out of the woodwork. Raise the age. Coming out of the woodwork. Yep. Mm -hmm. Raise the age for Khalif Browder. Oh, we got to do this. Oh, my God.
0: Yeah. Because the story is
2: sexy. Time out. Right now. Yeah, Uh,
0: You were in the trenches with him. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly.
2: Now you're going to come out because, you know, it's up for election. It's sensationalized. You you know, you want to look good. Yep. You know, that type of stuff comes across as disingenuous to me as someone who... I was talking about this story years ago. Yeah. And the mayor knew about this story years ago Mm -hmm. when Jennifer Gonneman wrote about it in 2014.
3: Mm.
2: And now all of a sudden, you know, uh, well, the mayor's like another person, but (laughs) I just find some of that stuff disingenuous. And I don't think that's lost in the series. I think whatever footage they had of him on video, I think was found. Mm -hmm. Uh, There wasn't a lot out there.
1: Like that you know, AB, was the private. ABC interview, I think, with uh-huh, yeah. the one afterwards. We I, went, do, I like that one because you get to at least hear it from the mouth itself. Oh, that was know? beautiful. Right. That yeah. was beautiful. I I'm remember when I first happened. saw yeah. that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's so in-depth. It was like the long conversation, too.
2: Yeah, that was a long day with them. Yeah. But it was beautiful just yeah. to see him smiling in the first episode like that. Like, wow.
3: Mm-hmm. You know, he was
2: so alive and full of life. And he was like that a lot. You know, but he was private, too, because there'd be times, like, I, you know, we went to a basketball game, like, to a Nets game and a Knicks game. Mm. And I'd be like, come on, let's take a picture, you know? He's <laughs> like, no, 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 no. I said, okay. Right. You know? I mm-hmm. said, oh, people, well, see, you know, you're allowed to have fun. You know, it's okay. You know, but he was private, in you know, in some respects, too. Right. Mm. And that, that, that's a that's a And a lot of that
0: thing. kind of went to his paranoia. Right, right, because I'm sure... You know, I'm sure even though the media coverage was necessary, right. I'm sure a lot of that was overwhelming, uh, and you can see it mm. in some of his interviews. Like he was like, "I just want to be normal." Yeah. Mm. Um, you know, when he was on Huff Post with Mark Lamont Hill, yeah. uh, and, oh, and, and the View, you know, it, it it was painfully obvious that he wanted to be normal, but yeah. it was definitely needed to get his story out. Uh, before these interviews, what would you guys talk about? Like, Would there be any, not so much media training, but how did you coach him to get through some of those interviews without mm. feeling like everybody's right here, like yeah. in front of me I'm uncomfortable?
2: I think there there were a couple of aspects to that. I think, number one, the distinction between Khalif speaking about his experience in an interview with, say, Mark Lamont Hill Mm -hmm. or On the View, and being and speaking about it in deposition, right, is that when he went on that those shows, uh, he received like so much love Mm. from people, and I would show him, hey, look at these emails, people are sending you letters, you know, you got to hang in there,
3: right, Mm. you know, because
2: there were times he had called, there was at least one time when he called me and he's like, I can't do it. And I go, you, you, you can't do that. Hmm. You know, like, like he was gonna do something. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you can't. You gotta hang in there. You know, otherwise, you know, you need, you can't do it. You know,
3: hmm.
2: otherwise, the city's gonna win. Hmm. You know, whatever hmm. they set out to do to you is gonna be done if you take your life. You know, and he like hung in there, and I think those, that embrace, that warmth he got from people inspired him. Whereas when he's in a deposition, he's getting cross-examined and crucified. Yeah. As if, you know, he did something wrong. Yeah. But he didn't. And so I think that's a distinction. And I think, you know, what I told him most of all was, you know, if you ever get uncomfortable, you just just tell me everything's taped, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, And I think we already had an idea of what it was going to be like. So I think after... The view, however, because you remember we only did something with like Eyewitness News, which was like a really small thing, right. mm. and the Huff Post mm-hmm. with Mark, uh, who was really incredibly gracious with him, mm. and, you know, the view with Rosie, after that, he didn't do any more interviews. Right. Yeah. You know, and I think at that point, um, you know, we really felt like, okay, we got the word out. Mm-hmm.
1: The work it, has to be done now.
2: Let's get this case moving because in these, you know, the civil cases do take a long time, long. and Usually how long does a civil case? A case could take years. It could take five years to go to trial. Jeez. You know, and it could take a couple of years to even just get to like any sort of settlement discussions because you have to remember in Cleve's case, there was so much paperwork, so much paperwork. And videos that mm. we somehow got. Um, okay. That it just wasn't, you know, the process is, well, you file a complaint, and then the city has a certain time to answer. And then it goes to court, and the court dates like three months later. Now, of course, he's out. He's not sitting in jail while this happens. But Thank God. You know, it's a s- slow languishing process. It's almost, There are some parallels to, like, the criminal courts. Right. You know, in terms of the time it takes, but... You know, once I think we got the word out, I wanted him to really focus on school and the case. And, you know, I, I honestly, I thought in the spring of 2015, everything was going to work out. You know, I was imagining like this case being over and Khalif like moving on with his life, like having some closure, mm. like having some satisfaction, like, yeah, they apologize, and they paid me. Not that it was about the money, it but the, like a lot of it was the apology. Yeah. He just yeah wanted for him. That, yeah. Yeah, but you know what? He the rec- know the recourse wrong. in these cases, guys, is there has to be. A, a, the money. You know, and I, I know sometimes it comes across the wrong way. Like, oh, the money, the money, mm-hmm. the money, symbolic of the injustice. Of course, mm-hmm. of course. You know, so. You know, the city just writing a letter and saying, hey, really sorry about what happened to you, pal. That doesn't really cut it. Yeah. You know, because how do you compensate someone for the harm that was done to him? Right. You know, in that case, in his case, I don't think there's a number that I could have even put on there, you know, to say what would make him whole again. Nothing could make him whole again. Yeah. Mm. You know, you get in a car accident, you break your leg. Six months later, your leg You're is good. fine, right? right? Yeah. Nothing heals what he went through. No. You know, that sort of torture. And I think, um, you know, when you, when you heard him and, you know, you heard his interviews, the depth and the detail and just the way he spoke. And I remember sitting in those depositions and he gave, he was so specific. And he would tell me, Hey Prestia, you gotta get the video for this day, and this—he didn't have a calendar in his cell.
0: He knew. Mm. He He knew. He
2: knew. And bam, there was the video. You know, it was remarkable his like recall to that, Mm. which short sort of demonstrated how he was still sort of in there. Right. You know, he just remembered all those dates. You know, and I think you know there was there was a lot more to it that you know, you can't even get into, mm-hmm. I mean, they 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 showed one of the, uh, incidents in the hallway. Um, this was in like March of two thousand twelve where the officers they were like three he scurried out of his room. Oh, and he oh was yeah. hanging himself. And they took him out. Yep.
1: Oh, and they beat him on the floor. And they yeah. beat
2: him. And they actually charged him with assaulting the officers. Yeah. Whoa. That's one of the little nuggets that you don't hear about a lot in this oh, story. Yeah. Wow. And then that case was dismissed also. They rearrested him for that. What wow. you saw there. You know, oh and it just God. goes to show the flagrant uh falsification of mm. records documents lies it t- goes to the culture of Rikers right um, and you know at the end of the day it wasn't even that it's that you have a teenager sitting sleeping in a bed without a pillow because that's a that's a safety hazard mm-hmm. and pulling his sheets up at night in that cold dank cell for 800 nights Because the mice would crawl up the sheets at night. Jeez. You know, and imagine like being a a kid. Right. Still seventeen. You should be home in your PJs at your mother's house and you're in that place. Man, you have no idea how scary that could be. Mm. I don't I mean, it just if you try to put yourself there. Yeah. So I think the progress they made was remarkable. I you know, part of me was like, Wow, I can't I hard to imagine he even made it that long. Mm. But, you know, I mean, I think it, it goes to like how strong of a, a person he was. Absolutely. Mm. Because it was really, uh, I, I could, you could see like that torment in him. Yeah, it's you insurmountable
1: it was, amounts of torture. Oh, my God. That, it, especially that age.
2: It was sad. It was just, you know, at the end of the day, it was sad. It was tragic. I know that people say, well, this is an inspiring story. and, that, so not, Yeah, but you know what? If you lived it, it was tragic. Yeah. Mm. And then his mother died.
1: Yeah, that, oh, my God. And,
2: you know, that was, uh, you know, I I remember his mom called me the day that, you know, that he hung himself. It was a Saturday afternoon. It was, like, noon. Mm. And I said, why is Vanita calling me right now? This isn't good. She won't call me on a Saturday. And she's just like, Prestia, he's dead. Mm. And she was crying. She was crying. I was just like, Wow. I, I just started crying, too, you know, and I, I was supposed to actually see my kids that day, mm-hmm. and I, I said, um, d- you know, Daddy has to go s- to Khalif's house. Khalif went to have him. Yeah, yeah. You know, they had met him in the office one day when yeah. he was walking. They did this thing mm-hmm. where we were going out to get, like, I don't know, ice cream or something. Mm-hmm. He was coming in from handing out the flyers. Mm-hmm. I was like, hey, Khalif, and, you know, I was like, girls, this is Khalif, and he was like, Hi. And they were like, hi. And it was like so sweet. You know, like it was like you saw that innocence, like that childlike innocence in him responding Mm. to them. Still have reflections. Of course. Of Of course. They were just kids. It was like so cute to him. Yeah. You know? Because he had lost that edge at that point. Right. He had moments where he had like that rage and Mm -hmm. stuff. Um,. You know, and then they go through the revolving doors over and over and they will and he's just cheesing, you know. It was, yeah. like, hilarious. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, and then to, like, be at the house and then speak at his funeral and you see him in this casket in front oh of you. Open casket. Like, you know, they don't prepare you for that in law school. And then to take on his mother and his family and then, like, she couldn't hang on. You know, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. And, and to me, it'll always be tragic, always be bittersweet. You know, no matter how many reforms there are, yeah, you know, but I think obviously there's there's something
0: important about the change that's been affected yeah mm. in, in in the docu series, and you know you see in the last episode, um mostly most vividly uh his his mother going through those experiences when he passed away, going to court, becoming an advocate uh, for him and his case mm. and people in justice. it's just a very, very disturbing situation all around i know that there's some reform being made and some changes in play especially that you're seeing on on the legal side but i think from our point of view even seeing his mother like his mother just looked defeated yeah after he he passed but you know it just seemed like she was keeping on after she after he passed
1: um, she was like that ray of hope. Yeah, you know, she was. It, she had been was, visiting though. him in Rikers, going all the, the long commute she would have to take to go visit him and see him, look defeated in Rikers at the time. Like it was just so much, you know. So, you know, how were how were the experiences like with the mother? You know, as things were progressing throughout the case.
2: Well, Vanita was was really quite shy. And humble. You know, when I when I first got to know her, and I think at some point, like after Khalif died, or even the night that he died, when I saw her, I said, you know, your son had this message. Mm -hmm. You know, the reason why he even came out and spoke about it was because had he not, this case would have been buried. No one would have ever heard about this case. Mm -hmm. And I, you know. And his mother was, um, you know, spiritual Mm
3: -hmm. and
2: like almost like, you know, everything happens for a reason type of thing. But why my son? And um, I said, Vanita, you know, we need you to be his voice now. Yeah. Because, you know, Khalif had this message and now it's his legacy. And you need to step up. You need to stand up and continue it because... I I was familiar, you know, I'm familiar with the news cycles and how things can sort of like in a heartbeat change, you know, the next story. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we really need to keep this alive. We need to keep not only his name alive, his legacy, but the reforms had already begun prior to his death. But I'm like, we need to change more of the system, you know, and we need your voice to carry that out. And she, you know, she got it. And it was it was amazing to watch her sort of step out and mm-hmm. start speaking. Because she was so eloquent and yeah. gracious really. And I think you, you saw that in the docu series.
1: Absolutely. I mean she was just she was definitely probably the best representation of, you know, the love that was surrounding him and, you know, the goodness of what he was coming home to after all of that horribleness that was going on. So I really did like the way that she was portrayed, you know. Um but I wanted to also I mean, know... I mean, it was hard. It was, yeah.
2: You know, it was difficult for her to sometimes make that trip or... Yeah, I mean, she... You know, was, or it she'd was, be nervous, mm-hmm. you know, but she was always amazing. She always... Because even like, when she
1: gets to Rikers, there's still a waiting process to even see him, I believe, right? Usually, like, for, um, to get him to come out. Oh, sometimes it can be a little bit of a process sometimes, I oh, believe. Oh, yeah. Like, course, sometimes, like, two-hour waits and stuff to even see oh, him for could, visits and things. You could
2: spend a whole day there. Crazy. Just to see him mm. for a half hour, an hour. Yeah. I mean, it's arduous. Mm-hmm. If you don't have a car to drive you there, you have to take a bus, probably to another, a train to a bus or a bus to another bus. Then you have to wait for a bus to take you over that uh, bridge, the bridge by yeah. the island.
1: Mm-hmm. It's just,
2: you know, the, the only way to fix that place was to shut it down. I, you know, I honestly believe that. There was no way to end the culture there. This is, they had tried doing that for a couple years already. And the ref- what they promised, what they were promising, weren't really coming to fruition. So, um, I, I think, really, at the end of the day, because the abuses still continued, even the sexual assault abuses mm. on women, mm. the falsification of documents that the U.S. Attorney outlined in this investigation in 2014, that stuff was still happening. And, uh, so it, it just leads me to believe that was the culture, was that place, was that island. And I think you hear a lot of the uh, activists who have been there speak about that. Mm-hmm. I, and I think it's so true.
1: I was gonna ask you, you know, what were your thoughts on De Blasio saying that he hoped like he wants to start the planning of shutting down Rikers because you just said you think it should be shut down. Like you agree with that what, with what he what he personally was saying with, you know, he hopes to just shut it all down.
2: I, I think I take everything that the mayor says with a grain of salt. Yeah, right. basically. I remember when Khalif passed away, he came out and he gave his condolences to the family, which I guess was kind of nice of him. But he <laughs> shifted the conversation to, you know, this just goes to show we need to really um, have more health, mental health workers in the city and we have to look at our mental health program in the city. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what? This isn't about fucking mental health workers per se. Mm-hmm.
3: He,
2: you, he should have been up there reprimanding the officers and right. the agencies who were involved in there. Like, be a leader. You mm-hmm. know, people are outraged about this. You know, and don't tell me, oh, we're going to take all the, you know, because at first it was this, well, l- let me just go back a little bit. In 2014, after Khalif's story came, there was an article, there was a, um, the U.S. Attorney did this investigation into Rikers where they found a the pattern of abuse and falsifying mm-hmm. documents, particularly it's in solitary confinement, and it sort of coincided with Jennifer Gonerman's story. Mm. So oh, the yeah. city, they, they had actually, the U.S. Attorney's Office forced, compelled the changes, made the city make changes at Rikers through a lawsuit. They took the city to court to force these changes. So the first one was to, uh, to end solitary confinement for juveniles, and then the next one that was going to take place was uh, ending solitary for those under 21. Mm-hmm. So first it was 16, 17-year-olds. Then it was supposed to be 18 to 21-year-olds a few months later. And that process took almost a year and a half for that wow. to happen. So, you know, at that point I was just like, he should just he should go in there and take those kids out himself. Mm. Yeah. You know, there's no reason. But, you know, it was like uh, Norman Seabrook and the Uh whole union
3: oh my god you know like he didn't
2: stand up for that and after Khalif died it was like that bullshit was like hey be a leader and speak you know stand up and tell the truth you know Mm -hmm. take some responsibility for this place the blame where it needs to be blamed don't make it about mental health because it's convenient and change the subject right you know, that's typical like politics. You wouldn't
1: need the mental health workers if you weren't putting these people in, that right. the, the, in the first Right. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole, there's a whole yeah. movement
2: now for like re entry of prisoners, which I'm all for. Mm-hmm. But you wouldn't need that to the extent you you need it now. If you weren't doing all if the you, shit you were. Yeah. 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 So, like, you know, the reforms got passed uh, the bail reform, speedy trial, uh, uh, what is that? Ending the court backlog. Justice Reboot to take people out of Rikers and that's made some progress but I think when you look at the mayor's approach if this idea is going to happen look let's be honest Speaker um, Mark Vivitero really pushes through I mean she promised closing to close Rikers back in 2016 at her State of the City address mm-hmm. and two weeks before the mayor agreed to close it He's, his suggestion was to just repaint it, right? Did you read about that? He just wanted I to re- actually did. Yep. He just wanted to repaint it, but then he had a whole change of heart because there was this commission that was yeah. formed, and there was so much momentum at that time, and this independent commission was making the same recommendations, and then, boom, what else was happening there's this fucking Yep. Mm-hmm. and everybody's like holy shit it's a hot, really? it's sexy now
0: again yeah it's, it's sexy, sexy again
2: i mm. mean it made it happen i think for this to actually work
3: mm-hmm.
2: all the reforms that we've talked about because it's not just the rikers problem it's a system problem yeah and to some extent Absolutely. it's a social problem mm-hmm. right i mean we could get into the disadvantages that young men and women of color have mm-hmm. in this city. Oh. You know, mm-hmm. and how, what they have to overcome.
1: Absolutely.
2: Um, but the system, the only way to fix it and to make it this progressive city and what we really idealize it as is to have it across the board and make sure that they all work like in conjunction, like hand in hand. Otherwise, you know, closing Rikers is not going to work. Right. You need to have... The, if you want the if you want less inmates, you need the bail reform to work. Mm-hmm. You need uh, to reduce the court backlog and continue that reform. So I don't really trust the mayor per se that he this is going to happen. I believe it's going to only because there's so much pressure and there's so many people who are going to make sure that it happens mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that he won't have a choice but to follow through on this.
3: Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Now, I, we, we had a corrections episode on our last episode of Dear Khalif, mm. the uh, the second part. Um, and she wasn't in Rikers at the time that Khalif was there, but she spoke to officers that were there and inmates that knew him. Um, and I'm sure you've heard this question before, but what do you say to, to, to the people or the inmates or this perception that Khalif was no angel? That he was in in their starting fights. That he he uh, he he um he was a troublemaker inside of Rikers. That yeah, he just wasn't as innocent as people think he was. So she she was basically going over accounts of just people who say yeah yeah I I knew him but he went over and he was punching people in the face and you know I I, I kind of counted her, her argument was you know saying well. He had to adapt to the culture that he was in. He had to defend himself. He had to defend himself. Of course, um, as a teenager, especially as a young black male, you're gonna be constantly tried, especially in a situation like that. But she was just like she heard she she's heard stories that he was no an angel. Like he would be threatening to commit suicide just for. The attention to get attention of the other officers to get attention of the officers, so that actually video that we saw with them standing, he was like saying, "I'm gonna do it," and they stood by and they were like, "We'll do it," because they didn't believe him. But what do you say in, in situations that or, or accusations that he was a troublemaker and that he wasn't as innocent as he seemed on the inside?
2: I mean, how, how do you even answer that question? I
0: That's because I, <laughs> right. I thought it was ridiculous. Yeah. Because to be put in...
1: No uh, one deserves that regardless. Regardless. <laughs> He's
0: putting the belly of the beast as a teenager.
2: I'm, I mean, no, I, I think it's, you know, no one's saying that Khalif was a perfect kid. And right. I think, no hey, one's a perfect listen, kid. Right. Yeah. We <laughs> were all doing stuff when we were 16 and 17. Facts. And yeah. Right. We like, what? I can't believe I did that, but... You know, I think what you said is, like, completely on point, Jameer. You put a kid in that environment, and I think that the one video where he's beaten up by, like, those 20 kids... Yeah, yeah. ...is a microcosm of why he had to... How he had to adapt. Exactly. Right? Exactly. I didn't see anybody sticking up for him. Right. He might have thrown that punch. No doubt he did. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that was preceded by him getting spit on. You know... What did you expect them to
0: do? That's what I was saying. I was like, you can't expect them to go, Oh, I'm. you can't you raise know, your I'm hand sorry, and, you know, no. hey, can, can I get excused? out of this? Right. No. Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't sur- work that way. The only way to yeah. survive yeah. is to
1: adapt basically to yeah. that environment and yeah. to full fledged go into the same mindset that they have. Yeah. Like to be and I think there was, I think he even said it. It's like, the only way that you'll survive is to turn into them, basically. Yeah. So, and then they were saying how it's like it's a chain reaction where you turn into that environment, so that when you go out of, it's like a system where you you have that mindset when you're in there that when you leave, you carry that mindset with you to only put you right back on purpose. Right. Right. That that's the what retention the system, rate. Yeah. Right. So that's a, yeah. So they can keep the high retention rate. Mm-hmm. So
2: yeah, no, there's definitely something to that, and I think that's. You know, when you think about what why the system, why why there are jails, I mean it's for you know it's for punishment mm-hmm. which you know, eighty percent of the, the individuals at Rikers are haven't been convicted of anything. And it's for redemption really, right? So you don't become a repeat offender mm-hmm. and rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. So how are they getting that in that environment? They're not. Right. They're getting more anger more jaded, you know, and um,
1: it's hard to learn. That's, like it's hard to learn what's wrong and right in an in an environment where everything is attacking you. Yeah, and yeah. And I, I don't know. I, I, didn't, I didn't. didn't listen
2: you. to that episode, and yeah. I don't know who this correction officer was. Mm-hmm. But you know, you know, I'll sit down with her and I'll talk to her because she didn't know him like I knew him. Right. You mm-hmm. know, and I know for a fact that. He actually went there and he wanted to study in jail. He was mm-hmm. like, well, at least I could get my work done or I mm. can study wow. and get his GED or whatever mm. or, you know, um, try to study something while he was there. Mm-hmm. And in solitary, they took his books away. They took his homework. They give him a homework assignment. You know, he never even got to do any. He didn't do anything mm. to really keep his mind intact. Right. You know, I, I think, you know, probably he had some books to read at first. But, you know, he didn't really have that mental stimulation. I mean, what did you expect him to do? You know, and whatever whatever he became in jail
0: was a result of what they put into him that. Mm-hmm. Right. He
2: turned into that. I mean, what did you expect? Yeah. Exactly. You know? And this isn't like, you know, you live in your environment, you live in your neighborhood and slowly you change. It. I mean, this is like in a couple of months, you know. You're like completely fucking crazy. Yeah. Well, it's
1: the same way. It's kind of the same way where if you go to a place and you're only around very happy positive people you feed off of that energy that Mm. you're around so if i'm around a bunch of people laugh and it's 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 like laughter laughter is addicting when you're around like a comedy show and you hear people laughing or you see laugh when you hear these laugh tracks on sitcoms the laugh tracks are there too it influences you to laugh even if the joke isn't that funny or you don't find it funny it's it's meant to influence you to laugh it's just the same way with any type of emotion so you're around people that Either are angry or violent because they're locked. You know they're locked up for a situation. Some of them that did not even do that situation did the crime that they're being accused of. You're gonna take on that energy and that anger well, at some point. So yeah. at the end of the day, it would turn anyone sour because all the odds are against you. There's yeah. no positive odds there for you at the moment. And what do you think was happening in solitary? It, you know he st-
2: He tried to stick up for himself. He mm-hmm. tried. But you see where that got him,
3: yeah.
1: And you just have, you know, some smart mouths, some smart mouth officers and around that are only bad. adding to the fuel to the fire. Oh,
2: yeah, you regress. Mm-hmm. You regress as a human being,
3: mm-hmm. you know. And
2: I, I can't blame him for any of that.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I always told him, like, I don't honestly, I didn't even care what he was charged with. He didn't deserve that. No, no. And that's why I always tried not to judge him once I knew like what he had gone through. So it really pissed me off when I heard. You know, when I got the vibe from people like, oh, he wasn't a good kid, or maybe he had something to do with it. Or, you know, solitary was legal at that time. Yeah, but bullshit. Mm. You cannot fucking treat somebody like that. That's
1: inhumane at the end of the day. Exactly.
2: And, you know, somehow these officers, who are there, by the way, to protect Mm
1: -hmm. the
2: individuals in jail, right? Mm -hmm. They're there for their safety. Had this... um, discretion to like impose their own system of law
3: mm-hmm.
2: and punishment you know and these kids and it, it just had to be a culture because you know I know people that have worked there
3: mm-hmm.
2: like real actual people right who weren't bad people but like would find themselves caught up in a situation where I, they want me to falsify a report right if I don't falsify the report I'm screwed
0: right. You that's know? that's what we talked about with the officer too. I said not only are the inmates in jail, but y'all are in jail too. Y'all take on that energy too. You guys have you guys change in a sense. Yeah. Because it's 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 a it's a institution for everybody that works there. You you got to spend time there too. You, you spend more time there than you do with your loved ones sometimes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you turn into the same thing that you're trying to fight against. Exactly. And I thought that was just very interesting because she said she didn't want to lose her color, meaning she was a person right. before she put on right. the uniform. Mm-hmm. But she slowly felt like it was taking over being wow. there those long hours. And yeah. I, I told her, I said, that's something that we need to start identifying as as people. What are they doing to you guys psychologically to make right. you guys act like this as well?
2: well? I think that has to do with the culture and the training that they get yep. and the oversight. Because you have to remember that no one's really overseeing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're, Their bosses or they're, the people that they're reporting to or who uh, are giving them the oversight are corrections officers. Just right. like with the police department. If they get... If, this, if someone files a CCRB report, a complaint against a police officer, where does that go? To the police
3: department. Mm-hmm.
2: Some investigator who reviews it and clears. It's the same bullshit. Same. When you look at this paperwork, I mean, wow, you'd be amazed if you've read half the shit I read. You know, mm-hmm. the way that, like, all everything's in cahoots, right, on these reports that mm-hmm. the officers make in Rikers. It's the same thing when you look at these CCRB reports. You know, could, a kid could be sitting there after a police encounter on the street in Brooklyn with like broken ribs, and he's saying, Oh, four cops came and kicked me and punched me, and, you know, I didn't do anything. And all the reports are the same by the officers. Right. I didn't see anything. I didn't see anything. I didn't see. Any- I right. didn't see th- oh, we don't find enough evidence. We're, you know, we're thrown out. Wow. It's like bullshit, you know, but I think, um, you know, out of all the reforms, I think what you know, like I, I'm most proud of is that this case pulled back so many layers mm-hmm. in our just in our criminal justice. It completely exposed the entire system. Because remember before Khalif and and I'll be honest, I didn't even know much about the solitary. Right. You know, he really opened my eyes to it a lot more. And I had clients that have been in Rikers Island mm-hmm. uh but never through a period of solitary confinement like that. But I think before 2012, 2013, what did we hear about? We heard about the system was police brutality and stop and frisk, right? And disparities in, in arrests of minorities, right? Mm. Typically. But this just took it to like a whole nother level mm-hmm. prosecutors and judges and defense attorneys and uh, corrections and jails and prisons and. Um, you know the impact is is uh, is immense.
0: Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you. I know you you kind of met Khalif after he was out of mm-hmm. out of prison, but for the for the people that don't know, I mean his his story about going to trial and it being you know pushed away and mm. pushed back uh, and having so kind of lawyers that might you know just public defenders might not have his best interests at heart. Knowing what you know now. Um, knowing the conditions that he was in if mm. you knew that before and you were defending him would you advise him to take a deal
2: I would never tell my client to take a plea mm. if he had if he didn't commit a crime right I've never wow. that's always my last question right if I get an offer from the district attorney and my client's not sure I said if you didn't do anything wrong I can't let you take this plea
3: mm. wow I, yeah. I
2: won't I won't do it You know, I cannot do it. Yeah. If even
1: if you knew that they would be going through what Khalif go through, would you you would still advise them to not take the deal?
2: Well, if I knew they were going through what Khalif went through. Or had I s-
1: like? Let's just say it's a t- it's a twenty two year old. So they could go to solitary. You know, they right. could go for a certain right. amount of you know those amount of days yeah. and stuff. And He was and, telling you like yeah, and he was telling you like I didn't do it. Would you still even if you knew it was going to be delayed for possibly up to a year, two years? Would you would still tell him you know like don't take the plea deal?
2: I would never advise him to take a plea. I mean, I'm
1: sorry, not take it if you knew he didn't. If you knew he didn't do it, sorry. Uh... To f- to fight that long, like you know. Because I it's mean, like I, a slippery I slope.
2: I would have done what I could to get him out. Right. Yeah. And I'm not here to badmouth anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, his attorney was depicted as a legal aid attorney, but he was actually an 18B attorney, which means he was assigned. He was on the city's assigned counsel plan, mm. meaning actually, in fact, he was a private attorney mm. that took cases from the city if there was an overload from legal aid. So I I used to do that in Brooklyn when I first started out on my own, you know to make extra income But you actually bill a pretty nice hourly rate, Mm. you know, I think he was probably billing 75 or 90 dollars an hour Which isn't that bad, right, you know, and he could have had a video conference with Khalif, you know You don't have to go to Rikers to meet with your client. Yeah, you can you can set up a video conference and go to any courthouse Mm -hmm. and speak to them on the TV on a monitor like, hey, what's up? Let's talk about your case. You know, how's it going? You know, what are you up to? Here's what's happening with the case, you know. And ask him. you right in there? hmm Right. How right. you doing? You okay? Everything all right in there, you know? So, look, I don't know the extent of it. I'm sure there were some, maybe uh, the district attorney's office had misled them mm-hmm. into thinking that they did gotcha. have a witness or not. Mm-hmm. But, you know, from some of the stuff I read, I can't defend him.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I certainly, you know, can say that there's no way Khalif would have been there for three years. There's just no way if I was representing him. Right. Mm. You know, I would not have let that happen. Mm. So I would have found a way or pushed away because someone could have prodded a judge along the way. Like Miss mm. like Clark, the, the so-called DA mm-hmm. in the Bronx right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To say, hey... Hello. It's been a year now. Mm. They haven't been ready. Or two years. Mm -hmm. You know, lower the bell. Get him out. Make a motion. Something.
3: Mm -hmm. I
2: mean, at some point, it was just absurd. Absurd that this was happening. And there were all these people involved. Lawyers, defense attorneys, judges. And it was still allowed to happen. Yeah. You know, some people had a reckless disregard. The judges. Maybe the attorney didn't have enough, um, was that maybe the judges were apathetic, Mm -hmm. maybe the attorney could have done more. The DA certainly had some presumption of guilt easily. I know it. I, I was a DA, Mm -hmm. you know, I wasn't perfect when I started, but that's one of the reasons why I left.
0: Mm Wow. Uh, first of all, I just want to thank you uh, for everything because this was Extremely powerful. Yes. Um, to say the least.
2: I mean I think so few of us go to law school. Right. And I think that's what I do when I like speak to these students, like when I see them or I meet them. Mm-hmm. Like you have this ideal when you study in law school, right, about the constitution or law. And most of the time when you go into practice, it doesn't translate. You know, like Over, if you're sitting right. in an office and you're billing hours and you're writing memos, you're like Uh, this is what the laws Mm -hmm. turned out to be. This great thing about justice, you know, and, um, you know, so few of us, you know, this is like an opportunity to just experience that, you know, you're there. Like, this is what you chose now. However it worked out, you know, like you ended up in the DA's office Mm -hmm. and, you know, you didn't get that job at the big firm that you didn't want anyway, but you're hustling. You're out there. You're like, with these people in the community as a DA, as a prosecutor, and then you're on your own. And now you have a chance, and you're just one person, but to fight for justice. you right. know, And that's like your responsibility. It's like your obligation. And you're not always going to be right. You're not always going to be perfect. But you have to at least fight. Mm. Because I don't think that I'd be satisfied if I... Got off a case, or and I don't, you know, I didn't put my hundred percent, or I didn't think I could do more. Yeah, for that person, whether it's in a criminal case or in a civil case, right? You know, if I felt somebody was wronged um, or falsely accused mm. Mm. of a crime, Wh-
0: where's the case at now? Uh, I, I, I know watching the docu series, we we see the fam after his mom passed, we see the family's house get sold, um, and I think. Now 2017, it's still extremely important to talk about this. Um, what happens with a case where the uh, Khalif passes away and his mom passes mm. away? Where's this left? Uh, what does justice look like for you and for his family?
3: Mm.
2: Well, I think with the pat with the passing of his mother and Khalif. Mm. I think anything at this point is bittersweet, yeah you know because yeah. they're yeah. not here <clears throat> and um, but really it's sort of complicated and convoluted now yeah. because there are you know it's in a circuit it's in a circuit's court proceeding which is like a, basically like a spin off of a family court mm. to determine who the administrator of the estate is going to be again. So that happened with Khalif when he passed away. Right. And, you know, at that point, it was di- it was a different dynamic. I, I just naturally, like, took kept going with the case mm-hmm. with the mother and father. They were there. Okay, let's go. Mm-hmm. We're, this is what we're going to do. Uh, but now, with Vanita passing away, now it's in surrogate's court, and there's sort of um, this someone needs to be appointed to mm-hmm. Khalif's estate and Vanny's estate. Uh, so there's a dispute between the siblings. Mm,
3: and that's and
2: Yeah, it's ugly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's not you know, I, I don't think anyone would have would have wanted this for no. for Khalif or anybody no. involved. Right. You know, yeah, I guess it makes the, the series a little more dramatic, you know, if you watch it, like, wow, holy shit, you know. This really sucks. Mm. But, you know, in real life, guys, it sucks. You know, this, you know, the whole entire thing kind of lost his innocence mm. because, you know, the Caliph, the, the, the person who really deserved the justice didn't get it. Right. Yeah. And then his mother, who like spent every Saturday going to visit him. Didn't get it. And, you know, mm-hmm. literally died of a broken heart. Mm-hmm. She didn't get it either. So,
1: you can only hope this, like, you know, his brother for what he's also been yeah. through with the system. He's, I think, he should be the one because he deserves a little bit of justice here. They're all, I, I have to really say, I, obviously, ties. I
2: know the whole family at this point. Mm-hmm. And uh, his brothers and his sister Nicole are, are really, really good people. Mm. You know, I've spent a lot of time with them, like, through this entire process. And Akeem is, he's a fighter. Mm. You know, he's like an amazing activist and he's been pushing this shut down Rikers read it since since Khalif passed away mm. and his sister uh has been like a, incredibly like supportive of his mother and his family mm-hmm. and his brother Dion and uh all his brothers you know they really they loved him and they loved Vanita and uh you know it's unfortunate that, that it's in that particular place right now uh and I can't comment as yeah. to who should or will or yeah. what will happen with the estate um but, you know, you just hope for the best because so many people have been affected by this, like in that yeah. family. Yeah. You know, I, I mentioned before, like, wow, I went to, through two the death of two people that I, I, I cared about in two years. But imagine, like, two family members right. in mm-hmm. that time, how difficult that is for them. So, Especially a mom. You know, yeah. I think the whoever the lawyers are in that proceeding are going to figure it out. And... Hopefully it gets resolved amicably. Uh, You know, I can't speculate as to that right now, nor can I comment.
3: Mm.
2: Technically, I'm still representing Khalif's Mm -hmm. estate and his mother's estate. So it's, the dynamic's kind of tricky. Yeah, Mm. And it's unfortunate. Because, uh, you know, even though there's a purpose for litigation and for lawsuits and that's your recourse to get justice, I think you know, you get to a point where it's just—it's too much. Mm-hmm. You know, too many lawsuits, too many disputes, too many counterclaims, too many. You know, you
0: just want like peace. Yeah. Yeah. Paul, I I thank you for being here. Uh, let me thank just you say for this conversation—I I learned so much, and just hearing you talk about Khalif. Oftentimes, we don't see. People, in their clients' corners like that, Mm. to the point where it's like even outside of the courtroom, I got your back. Right, you 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 took on a sense of a surrogate, like like you stated before, a older brother, uh, a father figure for this young man, who whether we knew him or not, affected us so much. So I want to say thank you to you. Um, And
2: it was honestly, uh, I just felt like. I needed to protect him. Right. You know, Mm. and, you know, there were certain things that happened that, you know, I couldn't explain, you know, like, uh, you know, but I, I, you know, everything I did for him and by him, I felt like I needed to protect him.
0: Mm. Uh, Before we get out of here, what do you miss the most about Khalid?
2: I really, I missed his laugh and his smile. You know, he was really good at laughing and uh, we could always like when we, you know, when we get together or hang out, you know, he sort of like got my sense of humor. <laughs> you know? So we would always like laugh, you know, tell some jokes, but he was, um, yeah, he was, uh, he was a smart kid, you know, and I missed, I missed his, uh, I guess I missed his laughter and his smile and his, his, that innocence. Hmm. You know, because when you could see that innocence, when you could see, like, that smile or that yeah. laughter, you know, you felt like you actually did something. Like, uh, like you know, that would make your day better, mm. you know, just to be able to have that effect on him, you know.
0: Wow. Uh, where can people find you, man? Like, where, how, how can we continue to, to get involved? How can we continue to support you? Um, and if anybody needs any legal advice <laughs> or aid, how can they get in touch with you?
2: Well, you can always, uh, well, my office is in downtown Manhattan. Mm-hmm. You can uh, check out my website, com, or you can always tweet at me at PVPESQ at Twitter or at PVPESQ and, or, in, well, Instagram's more like a, you know, personal. Yeah, 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 yeah. That. But, um. Yeah, I'm here. I'm out of here. So,
0: mm-hmm.
2: well, thank you. Thank you so much <laughs> for
0: real. Thank you so much. This was. I mostly powerful. I do
2: practice mostly in oh, only in New York. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I did get so many people who reached out to me. Yeah, like, during I'm sure. A series from other states. Mm-hmm. And you know, I wish I'm trying to build uh, or get some attorneys together. Who can help out like uh, more nation, you know, on a national level in different mm-hmm. states? Mm. Because we really had a lot of people reaching out to us for help um, in different states. So I'm working on that. So, but uh, I really do appreciate everybody who has followed this story really from the beginning and who has given, you know, gave his family so much support. Mm. I know it means it meant a lot to them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was an important story to tell. And, um, you know, I, I really appreciate your time. This was nice.
1: No, thank you. We
0: appreciate your time. Absolutely. Lindsay, powerful episode here. Right? (laughs) Wonderful, wonderful Mm -hmm. way to uh, wrap up this series. But Mm -hmm. we will not continue. We will not stop talking about injustice. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, uh, the prison system, mass incarceration. You know, it's such a crazy time that we're living in. But Mm -hmm. I really enjoy the fact that we can take this platform and use it. For Absolutely. things that supersede even our wildest dreams. Yeah, so, yeah. I never thought I would be having a never conversation. Never, so. but this was this was powerful. I thank you for always taking this journey with me. Oh,
1: thank you. Uh, where Thanks can they find
0: it. where can they find you?
1: Um, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and if you want Snapchat at Lindsay India, L-I-N-D-S-E-Y, India, I-N-D-I-A, like the country, uh, www.lindsayindia.com. About to do some revamping and my uh, mental health web series on YouTube, uh, Put My Anxiety in Rice. Mm -hmm.
0: You got to get a new episode up.
1: I'm... It's coming on Monday or All Tuesday. Right. So. <laughs> uh, there we go. All right. <laughs> what about you, Jameer?
0: Uh, you can find me at It's Jameer, I-T-S-J-A-M-E-E-R, on Twitter and Instagram. I am Jameer on Snapchat. And, of course, if you're over 40 and feeling frisky, ladies, <laughs> you can find me on Facebook, uh, Jameer Pond, P-O-N-D. <laughs> and uh, I appreciate you guys' time. Until next week, we'll have more Play Cousins. And
1: Hashtag Play Cousins.
0: Hashtag Play Cousins. Continue that conversation going, and we want to continue this conversation going. And um, thank you, guys. Powerful. Yes. Thank you. Peace.